Amen. If you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 6, we are in a series for the year through a uh, resource called the Wayfinding Bible, and we would encourage you to get one. If you cannot afford one, let us know, and we would love to, uh, to buy one for you. Uh, the first few weeks, here's where we've been, and then we'll jump in. We're going to cover four chapters this morning, so basically over the last years I've preached, anytime I preach under the allotted 25 minutes, I put that time in a bucket and I've kept it. So I have about three hours of preaching time this morning that we're going to go in, four chapters, it's, it's going to be easy. Uh, here's where we've been. Luke 24 was the first week, and what we found out, Luke 24, Jesus walking the Emmaus Road, is that he took and opened their Old Testament and scriptures and said, everything in here is about me. It points to me. And as we're taking this year to look at the whole of scripture, we're saying it's all about Jesus. Whether it's looking at him or looking behind and saying that's what happened. The whole of this text is about Jesus Christ. So then we went to Genesis 1, and we looked at the creation account, the poetry of chapter 1, and, and sort of more the narrative of chapter 2, and we found that God created this good earth. And man and woman were relating to God and to each other, and they were caring for God's creation, and things were right. The purposes of God were as they were supposed to be. And then we get to chapter 3, which is, if you've been around the church, it's called the fall. Adam and Eve choose to sin. They're tempted, we talked about that, but we said the core sin, if you really dig down to the center of what it's all about, it was their unbelief. Their unbelief that God and what God had said and what God had promised and God's ideal was actually all that it could be. And so they choose to believe in themselves and now we come to the flood. We're going we're gonna to hit some stories that probably you don't hear a lot, but you remember hearing as a kid. So I thought the best way to talk about it was for the first little part just to watch a movie about the flood. Joan, I know you probably saw what happened, but I can explain. Um, take the stuff to the car, guys. I'll be there in a minute. Guys? I'm, I'm going to take them to my mother's. Evan, I think you need help. John, please. I'm not doing this. It's not me, it's him. I went to that meeting in a suit and he took it off of me. Those animals are following me because of him. God. Does God know he's destroying our lives? Does God know he's going to get you fired? Yeah, he's trying to get me fired. He is trying to get me fired. That way I'll have more time to work on the ark. Because the rain and the floods are coming. No, I heard you, Evan. The whole world heard you. Joan, please, you got to believe me. There it is! It's happening. It's happening! It's raining! Evan. Joan! I know. I know. Whatever you do, you do because you love me.
do me a favor. Love me less. If you haven't seen Evan Almighty, it is a fun little movie. Um, so he, he, here's the thing we've got to say. The whole story of the flood is absurd, isn't it? Let's be really honest. I mean, if you're talking about your faith and you're looking at the Bible with your friends who maybe aren't believers in Jesus, like, it's absurd. And here's part of the challenge. So if that's true, if, if there is this thing of like, wow, that's, that's a huge story, people tend to do one of two things. Some people say, because it's unbelievable, I will simply call it a myth. It can't be true. And so, it, it, you know, it's whatever it is, but it, it, it's not true. It carries no weight. And some others tend to look at it and say, since it has to be true, then it has to be about science. It has to be about an exact history. And we put it in a little box. And when we begin to do that, then it doesn't quite fit in that box either. Instead of asking what we asked the first week is, if Moses wrote this and it was to Israel under Egyptian rule, what would they have heard? Would they have heard a science book? No. Would they have heard a myth? No. What they would have heard is something about their God that they needed to be reminded of in the midst of what they were going through. You see, in this time, the, in the ancient Near East, it's sort of a word we use for all the stuff that happened back then, most cultures had both a creation account and a flood account. Most cultures had them. And what sets the biblical one apart is what it teaches us about our God. As we jump into this, we're going to cover a lot. I've never covered this much scripture or read this much scripture. As, as we cover all of this, that's what we want to think about. What does this tell us about the God that we love and follow and the God who loves us? So before we do that, let me pray. We're going to be jumping in Genesis chapter 6. Father, we have a lot to talk about. And there are so many different ways that we could deal with these chapters. But Lord, I pray that you would speak. As that song just said so powerfully, that you would speak what is true. So Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit and to your praise and your glory, you would do that. In your name, amen. By the way, if you're uh, new around here, we are not going to answer every question you have. Um, often one of my goals in preaching is that you leave with questions. You leave thinking. Your heart is stirred towards something. So as those come up in you, just write them down. Be on this journey. What is this sort of stirring in you? Genesis 6. Let's look at verse 5. We're going to read a couple little passages out of uh, chapter 6 before we read all of chapter 7 and 8. Chapter 6, verse 5 says this, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw everything that they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Watch some of the words that are used. Watch what we're learning about humanity and watch what we're learning about God in this context. So the Lord was sorry. It's, you can't put God in your box. If you see this dynamic interaction in these chapters, you can't put him in some little box of who God is. There's this intriguing relational thing that's going on here. He was sorry that he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. Some translations say he was grieved. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every 
living thing. And we know that that, that ultimately doesn't exactly happen, that, that some do live. But he says at the beginning, I'm going to destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I'm sorry I ever made them. But Noah found favor with the Lord. We're going to see again and again and again that the Creator is by no means indifferent. This is not a heavy-handed judge coming down in anger. The Creator is not indifferent to His creation. He cares about it. If you look at verses 6 and 7 there, I think the whole point of it is to help us understand in a story like this, which we can go a lot of different ways, it's to help us understand, to penetrate the heart of God. That the God of chapter 6 through 9 here is not an angry tyrant. That's not who God is. But God is a troubled parent who's grieving over the alienation of his children. God is aware that something deeply is amiss with his creation. So that his own dreams, this is so important, so that his own dreams have no prospect for fulfillment. Things have gotten so bad that God's dreams and realities for creation can now no longer happen. He's not angry, he's grieved. It's intriguing the word that we see in chapter 6, verse 6, that it broke his heart or that he was grieved. It's the same word that's used in chapter 3, verse 16, for the pain of childbirth. That God is literally looking at his creation and is in this deep, deep, intense pain. That's the posture of God as we step into this. Verse 11, jump down a few verses. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and filled with violence. If you have a pen in your Bible, underline that filled with violence. We, we don't know totally what is going on. What exactly, don't you sort of want to know like what exactly is God's creation doing so that we don't do it? We don't know, but this word violence starts to give us a little bit of a key. So it's filled with violence. God's, God observed all this corruption in the world for everyone on the earth was corrupt. So God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures for they have filled the earth with violence. We see it again. Yes, I will wipe them out along with the earth. It's intriguing the terms for the perversion, the sin, they're various. It's, he uses the word wickedness and evil and corrupt. That they're filled with violence. But we don't have the content of like, what actually are they doing that got them to this point of no return? But if you look at the preceding chapters, you begin to see some of what is going on in the heart of God's creation. Man and woman, we see that story in chapter 3, how they rebelled against God. We see the story of Cain in chapter, uh, chapter 4. We see the story of Lamech at chapter 4 as well. The sons of God in the first four verses of chapter 6. If you want to have some fun, it feels a lot more like the Lord of the Rings. The sons of God. What are these creatures? What are, what, are, what are they up to? But there's something so evil about them that it gets us to the point where we see the story of the flood. But what all of this says, that's what is wrong with creation that is, has refused to be God's creation. Creation has gotten to the point where it's refused to honor God as God. It reminds us of Romans chapter 1, verse 25, where it says, Creation exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Somehow that's where we are, and the indictment is this. 
But the text tells us that I will blot out, I will destroy, I will bring a flood to destroy. This narrative brings us, and it brought the original readers, Israel in captivity, it brings them face to face with their God. And here's who this God is. This is a God who takes with uncompromising seriousness his own purposes for his creation. Takes it seriously. And this is a tough passage to preach because it's fun to talk about the love of God and joy and grace and mercy and all of that. But there's a side of God where God takes very seriously his purposes for his creation and he, God, is impatient when those purposes are resisted. So with all of that said, God who's dealing with the sin and rebellion of his creation, what I want to do is read through Fairly quickly, because there's a lot. But I I want you to hear, because this is the passage, chapters 7 and 8 in the Wayfinding Bible that that we're supposed to cover this week. So I I want to read them through so that you have the images in your mind of what's going on here. Chapter 7, verse 1. Remember, this is God's people in captivity reading the the flood account. Verse 1, it says this. When everything was ready, the Lord God said to Noah, Go into your boat with all your family, for among all the people on the earth I can see that you alone are righteous. Take with you seven pairs. It's intriguing. You see that word pairs time and time again. A lot of commentators think that brings us back to chapter one and two. We're created to be together. We're created for community. When things are right, that pairness thing is what is going on. Look at verse three. Also take seven pairs of every kind of bird. There must be a male and female in each pair to ensure that all life will survive on the earth after the flood seven days from now. I will make the rains pour down on the earth and it will rain 40 days and 40 nights until I have wiped from the earth all the living things I have created. If you want, close your eyes. As, as I've been studying this and reading down through this, it reminds me growing up. I, I'd never preached about the flood, but growing up, I heard it all the time in Sunday school. And when you heard it in Sunday school, if you grew up in Sunday school, you, not just, you didn't just hear it, you saw it on a flannel graph. Amen. Because the images are sort of like, they're they're there. Imagine that if you need to. Verse 5, so Noah did everything as the Lord commanded him. It's key. We're we're trying to learn about humanity and about God. Noah did everything that was commanded him. Noah, 600 years old, when the flood covered the earth, he went on board the boat to escape the flood. He and his wife and his sons and their wives. With them were all the various kinds of animals. Those approved for eating and for sacrifice and those that were not along with all the birds and the small animals that scurry along the ground, they entered the boat in pairs, male and female, just as God had commanded Noah. After seven days, the water of the flood came and covered the earth. When Noah was 600 years old, on the 17th day of the second month, all the underground waters erupted from the earth. And the rain fell in the mighty torrents from the sky. The rain continued to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. That very day, Noah had gone into the boat with his wife and his sons, Shem, Hem, and Japheth, and their wives. With them in the boat were pairs of every kind of animal, domestic and wild, large and small, along with the birds of every kind. Two by two they came into the boat, representing every living thing that breathes. A male and a female of each kind entered, just as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord closed the door behind them for 40 days. The floodwaters grew deeper, covering the ground and lifting the boat high above the earth. As the waters were higher and higher above the ground, the boat floated safely on the surface, Finally, the water covered even the highest mountains on the earth. 
rising more than 22 feet above the highest peaks. All the living things on the earth died, birds, domestic animals, wild animals, small animals that scurry along the ground, and all people. Everything that breathed and lived on dry land died. God wiped out every living thing on earth. People, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, the birds of the sky, all were destroyed. The only people who survived were Noah and those with him in the boat. And the floodwaters covered the earth for 150 days. Before we keep reading in chapter 8, that you get to this point, and I, I hope you're a little bit like me, like, I don't love this story. Right? Can we at least say that? This is a hard story to read. It's a hard story to begin to imagine that something this bad happens. And it leads to the question that we have to wrestle with. And I think if you're someone who takes your faith seriously, what does it take for God to literally destroy all of creation? What does it take? And would that God do it again? We'll talk about that in a little bit when we get to chapter 9. But what does it take for God to get to this point? Verse, chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. Keyword, but God remembered Noah. And all the wild animals and livestock, livestock with him in the boat, he sent a wind to blow across the earth, and the floodwaters began to recede. The underground waters stopped flowing, and the torrential rains from the sky were stopped, so the floodwaters gradually receded from the earth. After 150 days, exactly five months from the time the flood began, the boat came to rest in the mountain of Ararat. Two and a half months later, as the waters continued to go down, other mountain peaks became visible. After another 40 days, Noah opened the windows he had made in the boat and released a raven. The, there, there were different purposes for releasing a raven or releasing a dove. We're not going to get into all of that this morning. It's more just sort of fun information. The birds flew back and forth until the floodwaters in the boat had dried up. He also released a dove to see if the water had receded and if it could find dry ground, but the dove could find no place to land because the water still covered the ground. So it returned to the boat. And Noah held out his hand and, the dove, and drew the dove back inside. After waiting another seven days, Noah released the dove again. This time the dove returned to him in the evening with a fresh olive leaf in its, in its beak. Then Noah knew the floodwaters were gone. He waited another seven days and released the dove again. This time it did not come back. Now Noah was 601 years old. On the first day of the new year, ten and a half months after the flood began, the floodwaters had almost dried up from the earth. Noah lifted back the covering of the boat and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. Two more months went by and at last the earth was dry. Then God said to Noah, leave the boat, all of you, you and your wife and your sons and their wives, release all the animals, the birds, the livestock, the small animals that scurry along the ground so they can be fruitful and multiply the earth. The last time we saw that wording was in creation, that there's almost a new creation that is going on here. For some reason, God had to destroy, but something new is going to happen. Something good is going to happen. Verse 18. So Noah, his wife, and his sons, and their wives left the boat. And all of the large and small animals and birds came out of the boat pair by pair. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And there he sacrificed his burnt offerings, the animals and the birds that had been approved for that purpose. Noah is this, this picture of faith. I, I can't imagine. Uh, to, to have faith at a time like this seems near impossible to me. And if chapter 3, the sin of humanity at the fall is unbelief, Noah begins to give us a picture of what belief could be and might possibly look like. Verse 21. 
And the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race. Underline that. I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood. Underline that. We're going to get back to that. I will never again destroy all living things. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. Chapter 9, verse 8. And God told Noah and his sons, I hereby affirm my covenant. Covenant is simply language of an agreement that would happen between two parties. God is making an agreement with his creation. I affirm my covenant with you and your descendants and with all the animals that are in the boat with you, the birds and the livestock, all the wild animals, every living creature on the earth. Yes, I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all the living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. Then God said, I'm giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures for all generations to come. It's for you. It's for me. I've placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is the sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. When I send clouds over the earth, the rainbow will appear in the clouds and I will remember my covenant with you and with all living creatures. Never again will the flood waters destroy all life. It's a big story. There's a lot going on here. And as we close, I just want to close with two questions that we've done before that are, are, are questions you can take to the text time and time again. One is, what does this say about us? Second is, what does it tell us about God? So the first one, what does this say about humanity? What did it say to Israel? But in turn, what does it say to us? I think it says this, especially at the end of chapter 8 you see there. But I think it says this, that we are worse than we think we are. We're worse than we think we are. And especially when we try to rule God's good creation for him. We're worse than we think we are. We don't, we don't like to hear that. There's something in that that in, in our society that doesn't sound right, it doesn't feel right, but this tells us from childhood that we are evil, we are broken. It brings us back again to that passage in Romans 1 that they traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself. We're worse than we think we are. Chapter 6, verse 11 of Genesis says this. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and filled with violence. If we're worse than we think we are, and somehow this idea of violence is at the heart of this story, what does that mean for us? And when you think of violence, we tend to think of violence as something over there. It's in Iraq. It's in South Sudan. It's in places that we see. But it's interesting. This word for violence carries a range of meaning. It can mean simple anger. It can mean injustice. It's used in, this, in Scripture later on in the Old Testament to talk about a false accusation made of another person. I would propose to you that when we choose to not believe, to have unfaith, that what God says and what God promises is right and good and we put ourselves in that place of God, that when we begin to do that, violence plays out. And so here's how, how I, probably I can best sort of give it to you. Yesterday, 
uh, my wife and I on opposite side of the Twin Cities, we spent the day at softball tournaments. And uh, use softball tournaments for a variety of reasons are a great way to spend a Saturday afternoon watching people. But one of them is around the idea of anger. It's shocking that parents would get angry at a softball game, right? So here's what happens. I, I, I would propose to you, because this, this will sort of touch our hearts a little bit, that the violent thing that we see in the story of the flood isn't just about them, it's in me. So, for those of you that have children, for those of you who have been a kid, that's everybody in this room, when it comes to sports, if my goal for my children is success in sports. Here's what, what plays out. By the way, that statement alone, if that's the ultimate goal, that means now I have chosen to replace God as king of my family. Because God's goal for your kids isn't success. That's a whole other conversation we'll have another time. But it, if I choose to jump in and begin to rule and replace God in that role, and success becomes the goal, here's what, what happens. If I'm at a softball tournament and something happens that would any, in any way hurt my child or cause my child not to be a success, what tends to happen? I get angry. And it looks different ways. And we, you see the rare story of the parent who actually goes and, you know, hits a coach or hits a referee. But for those of you that have been on the sidelines and something is going wrong against your child, there's the healthy protective side of it. But you know the unhealthy. You're the leader. Success is not happening. And I begin to play it out in some pretty angry and violent ways. And sometimes it's just my tongue. When I'm saying to the other parents sitting beside me about the coach because he's not there, that's violence. Because I have chosen to replace God. Friends, I think one of the most hopeful things that we can hear, and I, I truly believe this, one of the most hopeful things that we can hear is we're worse than we think we are. Which simply means God is more loving than you can imagine. God is more loving. This text points to and tells us about God in such a beautiful way. That the essential fracture between creator and creation, it's, it's the premise, it's the agenda for the whole flood narrative that something has gone wrong between God and his creation. God is, is not one who's just going to sit back. That God will do something. And Noah gives us a picture, gives us an image of deliverance. And as God, through Noah, delivers and then sort of makes things right, causes this new creation, that's the language of the text. What that does for us, friends, it points right towards Jesus Christ. It points us right towards Jesus Christ. That in the New Testament, we have some of that same language that if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. That the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ ushers in something that is just as good and new and beautiful as when Noah and his family walked off that ark. That God is the one who ultimately wants to deliver. And here's the interesting thing. Here's the interesting thing that he does it in the opposite way we would. We act with violence. 
God in human form takes violence upon him. Not only takes our sins, but takes the deepest parts of our depravity on him so that through trusting in Jesus Christ, we could be delivered. That's actually the story of the flood. That it points every one of us towards that. Whether you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you read this and it, it makes you struggle inside, but at the end of the day, it points towards Jesus. And for those of us who've done that, but it's just a day in, day out journey of trusting in Jesus Christ. Last night when we got home, not, not only, for those of you that have kids in sports, not only do you spend the whole day watching them, when you get back to Mankato, you have to go out to Buffalo Wild Wings, right? It's somehow in the parent handbook. So Genesis and I ran by the house, got changed, and we're driving on Highway 14 over to Buffalo Wild Wings, and what do we see? Rainbow. The thing that's supposed to remind us that not only will this not happen again, but this tells us exactly about who Jesus Christ is when we realize that we are far worse than we could ever imagine. Amen? Father, do both sides of this for every one of us, God. I pray that as we sit here and for some of us being reminded that we are worse than we think we are is easy. For various reasons, it's just, it, we don't have a struggle with that. For, for some of us in this room, God, um, it's hard to hear. We think we're pretty good. We think we have it together. But we know that the anger and violence that sits under the surface, it's there. It's there. And so as you remind us that we are broken, hurt, hurting people. We're worse than we can imagine. God, I pray that you would also draw us towards your son, Jesus Christ, who through his life and death and resurrection ushered in a new creation, a new hope that is offered to each of us in this room. For some of us, the first time where we turn and repent of our sin and we come to you that we trust and believe in you. And for the rest of us, it's day in, day out, trusting and believing and submitting to your ways and believing that your ways are actually the right ways for your good creation. Pray this in your name. Amen.